So what made you decide to go with painting instead of with the felt? With the felt. It's a, it's a really good, it's a good question. Um, I realized that I was splitting my time between my kids, my day job, or I call it my normal person job between painting and trying to do fiber. And I was trying to do it all and I couldn't do it all. I was thinking about where do my passions lie? Why am I doing painting? Why am I doing fiber? And what's the most important thing? And, and I had to focus. It's just, it was a time crunch thing. So what was the most important thing? Well, it turns out that um, making space and time in my schedule for my relationships was the most important thing. I was really busy in, well, everything started off slow until it wasn't. I got show after show. I had all these opportunities. I was taking all of my vacation time from my job to do art. I was, you know, doing all-nighters just to get paintings done. And my kids always had to wait. You know, so we could take a vacation later. This is this really important opportunity. I have to get this done. I have to, I have to produce art. I have to build a body of, of work so I can have galleries be serious and into, into my work. But I forgot that you can't just keep running flat out producing without replenishing yourself through your relationships. How'd you come to that realization? I had, <laughs> it was, it was kind of, it wasn't all at once. It was a, it was a, there was an abrupt stop where I took a two week stress leave from my job not related to art, related to personal reasons. And it was it was right before the pandemic. My first day back at my job after being on sick leave was the first day of working from home. And the, the, that stop forced me to invest time in myself. It forced me to spend time by myself. And I realized I, I was filling my, myself and my time with all of these activities so I wouldn't have to spend any time just alone. And that just carried over into my relationships. And then just through the process of healing, I realized that because I'm spending so much time with others, with producing things for others, with not spending time to make myself better for the people who are closest to me, that I was actually wasting my time. And it, was make, it wasn't making good art either. My art got stronger after I realized that I'm, I'm I'm feathering this nest of my life with this with all of these experiences with others with all of this art, but I'm not bringing my children along, and I'm not investing any time in my friends. So it was it was slow. It was really slow <laughs> until it was there was a very hard stop <laughs> where yeah. things were tricky. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sounds like you realized you were actually on a alone journey. Yeah, and then you pulled them in. And how much did your art improve from there? It shifted entirely. Before I was always focused on taking risks for other people and and trying to trying to make the thing that someone would buy instead of making the thing that spoke to me and what was like my reality. I started putting the influence of the colors in, in my paintings, they come from the emotional state that I'm in. And to be able to put those colors in, I pull from the experiences that I have with the people in my life. So you and me sitting down later, somehow this will be in a painting. My experiences with my children will be in a painting. I've been dating the same person for the last two years. And our, I was working on a couple of commissions early in our relationship. And there's two 
there's two reference shots for two different paintings for two different collectors that he and I took together. And the one of them, I just, I love this painting. I, all of my paintings are my favorite painting, but this one particular, it's really special for me. It's, it's, um, it's mostly purple and it's of city perk, the coffee shop in city park. And the collector who, um, who wanted, who commissioned me to do this painting had me do two. One of them is the Robin Hood flower factory from their condo window. It's there. It was their first place they ever lived together. And then they wanted me to paint the first place they met for their first date. And that was one of our first dates, like just taking this reference shot of this place. So I, I love this painting. It's their first date. It's where we went on one of our early dates. And I just, I absolutely love it. I love that painting. Sounds like two things meshed where you're actually creating something you loved and also something that somebody else has a deep connection to. Yeah. So what's your general creative process? Um, that's a good question. I haven't really ever thought about it. Um, I, in order to get into a painting, well, I've, I've just sort of hardened it to the, hardened myself to the point where no matter how I'm feeling, I just work. I had, I, I learned that I had a really uh, challenging, um, collection back in 2018. I had about two months to get 20 paintings. Turns out I took I took 15 to the gallery. I had 20 paintings. They were all 48 by 60 inches to North Battleford. And keep in mind, I, I share custody of the kids with my ex-husband. So one week they'd be with him, one week would they'd be with me. And when they were with him, I was trying to get these paintings done. I wasn't even sure. So compressed, I had about a month. And because I also had to ship in all of the canvases from Quebec. So I, I at this... <laughs> In the, in the kind of in the right in the middle of this focused work session, I had this um, breakdown of a relationship. And I remember I was feeling really sad. And I just, I, I'm like, I have this opportunity. I can't let it fall away because I have hurt feelings over a broken up relationship that wasn't even long term. So I, I went for a walk. I gave myself the space to just go for a walk and, and reconnect and, and ground myself in something. And I couldn't figure out what. And I asked my question, okay, so if I need to pretend to be someone who can get things done, who would that be? And I'm like, well, rappers, rappers always talk about they're the best. Cause I was also struggling with this imposter syndrome. So I'm like, okay, so rappers really have it going on. But I did, I didn't know anything about rap at the time. I had never listened to rap really. So I started Nicki Minaj was my, like my gateway rapper. And then I found uh, Logic and g Easy and J. Cole. So I listened to a lot of Logic finishing this collection. And I remember being sad and crying and painting anyways. And I banged out this work. I had the show in Chapel Gallery in North Battleford. And that has become a part of my process. I don't want to go to the studio and I'm going to go anyways. I'm going to commit. Even if I commit for an hour and I'm like, screw this, I'm going to go home. I'm going to commit and get something done. It might not be great, but getting something done is better than getting nothing done. So that's a really key, like, like core value of my process. And, and music and rap has kind of turned into the, that's how I, I hijack flow by listening to rap. Oh, so it gets you in that state quicker. Yes. I can get into flow state before I had to like wait for it to happen. And now it's just, it's, I can turn it on like a light switch. Oh, with the rap music. With rap music. Yes. That's what I use. <laughs> so that's kind of your muse then. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I can I can sometimes get there with other types of music, but rap does it the fastest. Oh, that's unreal. Yeah. 
So then when you actually found out that when you're painting, some is always better than none. Absolutely. And it's the truth. It's the truth with anything. So I don't know if you remember back in the day when I wanted to be a cop and I was training to be a cop, right? I remember, and this is always stuck in my mind. I used to train with a group of other people wanting to be cops. And we trained with a, with a group of trainers that specialized in high performance athletes and specifically with the type of physical testing that the police do. And Remember, everyone was just out there bitching and complaining about having to do this warm up and all this work. And one of the trainers said, look, you guys, if you think we're hard, just wait until police college. We are helping you build resiliency for when you get there. You build resiliency now so that when you get there, you can perform. And that's always stuck with me. And I, I recognize that it doesn't matter if it's art or if it's my day job or, or anything it, that, that idea of resiliency, of building in the habit of showing up, even if you don't want to, it, it, it really, it really helps to, to get things done and to make progress. Yeah. You truly embraced being uncomfortable. Yeah. And I would train uncomfortable and that's how I learned, um, in, in that process, I learned a lot from training to be a, a cop, training to want to be a cop. I never was a cop, but, uh, I would train without socks. Cause I, I would, show up and it was really hard to run stairs or run, you know, run miles in, in shoes without socks. So I'm like, okay, well, I'll just not bring socks every so often. I won't bring a hair tie. So I have to run with my hair down. And so being uncomfortable, learning to embrace being uncomfortable and producing anyways is, is just something that I've, I've grown accustomed to doing. That sounds like a big lesson. It is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And how did you come up with being a little more uncomfortable? I have no idea. I think it's just, I, I sort of have this, um, I've been, I've been, I've been formally trained through my career as, uh, like process improvement and quality improvement. And I just do this reflexively. I did this before I was ever trained in the methodology, but I would kind of look and say, okay, so if this situation makes me uncomfortable, how do I, deal with that discomfort because if I'm forgetting to bring something with me and that's stopping me, so is there a way that if I have it or don't have it, I can still perform anyways? So that's, that was my thought process. So if I have to, so at my studio, it's like, well, if I, if I don't have my sweater, how can I, cause this is my, this is my dirty art sweater. If I don't have my sweater, if I don't have music or I just, I just, you, you got to set yourself up to be uncomfortable and do things anyways. Yeah. yeah. So, so you were almost doing a win in all conditions. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so what, wait, so what's this processing? Process thing? improvement. Yeah. What's this, what's going on with this? So I, I learned about, um, process improvement, quality improvement. Lean is one of the sort of name brands of like capital L lean L E A N. It's a methodology about just making processes, more efficient through, um, just like tweaks here and there, like the less time you have to look for information, the less steps you need to walk to get something, having yourself organized digitally on your computer. If you spend 20 minutes looking for a file, then your files aren't named right. Maybe you need to get rid of stuff. So it's, it's that sort of idea. It's always, and I I do that in like my mental health and I do that in my physical space. It's just sort of, it's just everywhere now. Ooh, what's yeah. something you've done in your physical space to make things more efficient? Well, I mean, in the art studio, when I was when I was doing that big um, amount of work for that show in North Battleford, I um, 
I would have these tubes of paint and I'd leave them on my studio floor. And I, at the time I was painting in boots and I would stand up because I would sit on the floor painting. I would stand up and step back and I'd always step on a tube of paint. And they, the tubes of paint are not cheap. They're like 60 to $70. And I, I would lose probably, well, either all of it or half of it. And it would be something like a full tube. So I've just learned to put all of my tubes of paint in a bucket so that when I step back, I kick it instead of stepping on the tube of paint. Just things like that. I mean, it's not necessarily making things more efficient, but it's saving me money and saving me from myself. Yeah, because you didn't retrain a habit. You just, it was quicker to just put it in a bucket. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's the whole thing about this process improvement. It's, it's what, are, what are the things that trip you up and how can you make them a little bit better? Like school stuff, school folders, grades, permission forms. I have two baskets by my front door, one for each kid and anything related to school, I pop in there. So I can always find them. And the spare keys for the car are in one of those folders. They're like wire baskets on the wall. So I can just, I always know they're going to be in there. I always lose track of my car keys. So I have uh, just a command hook on the back of my front door. I come in, I shut the door, I hang the keys up. I never lose track of my keys anymore. Nice. That's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, so this is what you do as a day job? Um, I actually work in IT as a day job. <laughs> this is, it, it this this process, this process improvement stuff really helps. But yeah, um, I'm uh, working with the University of Saskatchewan and I'm helping them kind of evolve and put in sort of, uh, I'm trying to, I'm just trying to think of the words, uh, new technology to help um, like with research information management. So the university does a ton of work with bringing in research dollars. They're in a research intensive university and they have a human ethics process and they have animal research ethics process. They're both really complicated. They're both similar, but totally different. And then there's all of the offshoots of the activities that have to occur for those to happen. And it's really challenging for people in different departments to share information across. So the university doesn't have a really streamlined solution for this. So I'm helping put that in place. Just my team just got together. We're just starting it. We're starting on animal research um, and just animal operations. And we're in the process of uh, working on requirements validation to move to an RFP so we can find a, a new solution for that. Ooh, what's an RFP? Oh, sorry. Request for proposal. So the university, because of uh, the nature of the university, you can't just go out and buy a new technology. There's there's checks in place. And the checks are not just to ensure that the new thing that comes in works with all of the other systems, but that it's also secure, especially within our current landscape where there's been some foreign espionage in other provinces. We have to make sure that we keep the, the digital ecosystem safe from intrusion and also all of the systems talking to each other. So we put out there, this is what we're looking for. These are the things it has to have. These are the nice to haves. And then we invite companies to get back to us and they're going to show us how their system works in a couple of different scenarios we give them and yeah. we'll pick a winner. Okay. We'll pick, we'll pick a racehorse. Yeah. <laughs> so you're shopping around right now. We're getting We're getting our shopping list together. Okay. So requirements validation is we're getting We're talking to all the people who need to use this thing or who might use this thing. We're in there. We're going to get our big shopping list and then we're going to cut off the things that don't make the shopping list. And then we're going to put it out there for people to send us their proposals. Oh, what are yeah. some of the challenges you've run into during this process? 
Oh, um, the main one being that the people who know the animal research space are the people doing the work. So for me, I have a background in coordinating research projects, but on the human side, either either in biomedical, so like clinical trials or um, administrative health data projects. So every time you go to the hospital, the doctor, you fill a prescription, you, someone who's using home care, there's a database that's managed by the Ministry of Health and an organization called eHealth Saskatchewan. That data goes there and then it just sort of sits. And researchers can do research projects provided they have a good question and provided they're affiliated with an, uh, like, a, like a university and they can ask questions of this information and they can uh, have projects that make health better for the province. So that's an example of an administrative health research project. You still have to go through the ethics sort of application for that. So I've, I, I really know this human ethics space pretty well, but the animal research space I didn't. And it is absolutely wild how little I knew and how little I've been there since August and how little I still know. And out of my team, I know the most. (laughs) What surprised you about it? I think the dedication and the passion of the people doing the work, to be honest. I understand the ethical processes in place for animal use. Um, I'm, I'm actually surprised at how much research the university does with different animal species you know fat head minnows zebra fish i know like <laughs> trout arctic char like just hamsters it's just wild to me that they that people are doing research with fish i mean it makes sense but the and, and insects so there's all these <laughs> all these like ethical considerations And we, because there's a national, um, it's not quite a regulator, but there's a national organization that oversees animal use at universities in Canada. There's all these different considerations. And that's really every time it's like, how is this handled? And then I ask the staff and it's handled this way, but there's like 10 things you need to consider. It's pretty wild, the amount of intricacies in this area. And the reason being, and because people are, People who don't know the animal side always say, well, so it's just like human research. You, you know, you have to get, a, have to get approval. Yes, but it, humans can consent to having research done. Animals can't. So the process to make sure that animals are ethically protected is more rigorous than it is for human. Before you even get approval to do, and it's not just research, it's also in teaching and learning. You have to go through a process where what you're going to do is, is validated by an independent body on campus. They, they review like the scientific merit of this study. Does this have any scientific merit? Yes, no. Or does it need to be tweaked? And then it goes through the review process. So it's, it's pretty intense. Yeah. I always thought it was wild west, but no, there's a lot of back checks in there yep. to make sure the animals are safe. Yes. And even there's like different levels of pain recognition for different types of animals. It's very, I think it's like a five or six point pain scale and like what an animal might exhibit. And if you, if you're not sure, you always have to defer to, you know, yeah. The higher level. Yeah. Yeah. If this, that, that, if you're not sure that animal's distressed, so you need to stop it or you need to amend what you're doing. Yeah. It's really, really rigorous. That's pretty reassuring though. Yes. Yeah. So what have you learned so far from the animal ethics point that's kind of stood out to you? It's, I don't want to say everything. What's honestly, what stood out to me is the, this idea of this, it's a peer review process, the the scientific merit review. It's, 
I always thought, okay, well, I'm going to do a study. I'm going to do a study on 20 rabbits and I'm going to do this. I'm going to look at, I don't know, breeding habits. I don't know. I know nothing about animal research. And I could be asking for too few rabbits for it to be scientifically valid because you, you want it to be scientifically valid, but you don't, it's like, you don't want to waste the time of the animals. If you're not going to get valid results from 20 rabbits, but you're going to get them from 50 rabbits, then that's what you should be aiming for. You're using more rabbits, but the results are going to actually be more valid. So that's really interesting to me that just it's in, in human research, it's a sample size. It's kind of similar, like, but this one, it's the, the entire study can be stopped because there's not enough or there's too few. Because your proposal was for too few. Or too many. Or yeah. Too, oh. So. You can have too few or too many. You maybe only need five rabbits to do your study, but you're asking for 20. So you have to amend your proposal and bring it down to five. Oh, and they'll tell you that though. Yes. Okay. Oh yeah. You're okay. getting feedback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that was so complicated. It's really complicated. And this week, I thought I really, I had it kind of locked down. And I've been, in order to gather requirements, it's, it's, uh, it's a lesson in patience for me. I've been cultivating the habit of patience. I'm quite an impatient person. And I've been reading through policies that govern animal use on campus to pull out any, any required forms or any required information to understand, do we, have we covered all of the areas that we need for our, our RFP. And it's, yeah, it's a lot of reading of boring, boring things. <laughs> <laughs> How did you start developing more patience? Oh, just allowing myself, uh, you know, a quality procrastination moment and then just doing it. I don't know. It's just been, it's been over time of giving myself the grace and latitude to feel some feelings and do it anyways. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. Sounds like you used to put a lot of pressure on yourself to be continually moving forward. Always. I was very future focused. I was losing sight of what, like this current moment that I'm in and always thinking, okay, well, the next big thing is going to be this. So I have to, I have to start leveraging what I'm doing right now to hit that next thing. And it just really, I, I just lost sight of where we are right now. I mean, we live a lot in the past in our minds. But the, the life that we're living right now is our, is our life. And I was losing that every day because I was thinking so far in the future. I was stuck like mentally, mental health-wise in the past of what had happened to me in the past that, that created some trauma for me. But I was so focused on hitting the future that this present I was entirely missing. Ooh. Do you feel you were almost trying to avoid the present? Yeah, I think that was probably a big part of it, especially when I started my healing I, because I didn't want to deal with myself and <laughs> I didn't want to be alone having a conversation with myself. So that, that was a big part of it. <laughs> yeah. When you decided, hey, I'm going to face myself, how did it feel? I didn't face it until a friend of mine dumped like a you know metaphorical bucket of cold water on my head. It was the pandemic. It was, I think, April of the pandemic when things weren't looking good and everyone was stuck at home. And I was talking about, it was one of the weeks where my kids were with their dad. So I was by myself and everything in the silence was deafening. And I was saying to her, I'm like, I just miss people. I just want to go out. I want to be in crowds. I want to be around people. And, and how I was talking to her, she's like, I want you to read back what you just texted me. She goes, because you sound, she's a counselor. She goes, you sound 
like the addicts that I deal with. But you're not using drugs and alcohol. You're using people to avoid being alone by yourself. And when I had that realization that, you know, that idea where I was feathering my nest with other people, it was that. So I didn't have to sit and be alone with myself. It wasn't a, it wasn't a hard pill to swallow, but for me, that was my, my epiphany. It's like, holy shit, I do not like who I am. I don't like how I talk to myself. I don't like how I sit in judgment of other people in my head. And I don't like the decisions that I've made. I don't like how I show up. But I have nothing else to do but be with this person because there's no one else around because we're forced to be locked down. So when you decided to make that change, how difficult was it? I don't think it was difficult. I think it just took the time. So I'm just kind of thinking back to those early days because I think this will probably make it make it make more sense. So I haven't shared this with anyone just because I wasn't sure if I wanted to like put this on social media. I didn't want to use my story of trauma as a way to to get likes and follows because that's gross to me. In 2019, I experienced a sexual assault from someone that I had gone on a date with. At the time, I didn't realize what that that's what it was. I had texted a friend and I explained to her what had happened. She's like, where are you right now? I said, well, I'm at home. She's like, I will be right there. And she came over and she was sitting with me and talking through with me. And I didn't realize until 2020 when I had my mental breakdown, I had gone, I'd gone to see a counselor at the Saskatoon Sexual Assault Center. And I was sitting in this meeting with her and she was narrating the experience of someone, the thought patterns of a person who's experienced trauma. And as she's narrating them, I said, it's like, I said, I don't know how you're doing it, but it's like, you're pulling the thoughts straight out of my mind and narrating my reality to me. I said, and I started, I started crying and, and I said, for, I said, what you're telling me is that how I am is not how I've been made or who I am, that there's another possibility for me and my life. There's a different way of showing up in the world that I don't have to be this person because I experienced a sexual assault when I was a child and that informed my entire adult life of relationships with men. So what happened to me in 2019, for me, that was just, that's how men are with women because my baseline was that men assault women and men and women have unhealthy sexual relationships with each other. So when I wasn't even aware that, you know, when I had said no in 2019 and things happen anyways, I just took all the blame because I was like, well, shouldn't have been there. And this friend of mine who showed up, she and I had worked years uh, together years ago. That's how we met. We met through employment. And she was a volunteer um, crisis counselor at the Saskatoon Sexual Assault Center. So if someone was raped and they went to the hospital, she was that person that would go and provide support to the victim. So when I told her what had gone on, she came over a bit as my friend, but as that crisis response person without even telling me. And it took me a full year and more <laughs> in this process of healing. I realized that's what she had done. I didn't even, it took me until I was in the process of healing. So how long did it take me to realize uh, all of these things? It was gradual. There are these little epiphanies. But once I realized that there was a different possibility for me in my life, I decided to dig in and work on myself and not look back. 
And I pursued it like it was my third job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You realized you actually weren't stuck. I wasn't stuck. I had shitty things that happened to me, shitty things that had scarred me, but that I could rise above them by just sort of, I I describe it as um, like threads on a sweater. You know, you find a thread that's hanging and you pull on it until it lets go. And then maybe you find another thread and you pull on it. You can't unravel the entire sweater all at once, but you can pull thread by thread and start to unravel the sweater. And that's the approach that I took. Just every day, a little bit at a time. Exactly. And the big one for me was, and in COVID, I was doing phone counseling sessions, which was really, I mean, not ideal, but that, that helped me, I think, also with the not being around people thing and having to be alone with myself. Yeah, my, for me, the big thing, and I, this comes back to patience, is managing my triggers. And my counselor, uh, Kathy, she, we were talking about triggers and, and I said, I'm feeling this way and I'm, I'm, I'm stuck on. In, in any, when you have, when a person has a response to a stressful situation, there's a normal baseline. They maybe go up and they, they're, they're activated or they go down and they're a little bit kind of turned off. But when you're someone who has suffered something traumatic or several traumatic things, you, you get into a state where you're either stuck on all the time and you're highly activated and you're on high alert or you're stuck off and you're, you know, you want to sleep all the time and you numb. And her, her advice to me was you recognize that you're feeling the thing, you're feeling triggered. And your next question to yourself should be, so now what? What do I need? So when I'm feeling triggered, and it's really, this has been a great like skill and habit that I've, I've developed over time, especially in, in meetings. You know, okay, so I'm, I'm feeling emotionally activated. Am I hungry? <laughs> Am I tired? What do I need to feel okay? And sometimes in the moment, it's just that I'm feeling emotional, it's not personal, and I can feel this later. And I can, I can kind of de-escalate and regulate myself a bit better. Mm, so you're actually getting in touch with how you feel now. Yes. Yeah, because I didn't like feeling anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I, feeling anger, though, has been really difficult for me. I have a tendency to gaslight myself. So I feel passionate, but not anger. And my counselor, she's... <laughs> She said, when do you feel anger? I'm like, I don't feel anger. She's like, Wendy, that's not healthy. And I said, well, no, anger is not good. She's like, anger is in the full range of human emotion. <laughs> yeah. It's not healthy to never be angry. I'm like, oh, I don't agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> anger, in a sense, helps protect you too. Yes. Yeah. How do you feel anger? I don't think I've ever seen you angry. You're just, you kind of laid back and chill. Do you get angry? <laughs> of course I get angry. <laughs> Who doesn't get angry? <laughs> I guess you. <laughs> so how did it feel when you started? Wait, can you feel anger now? Uh, kind of. I had um, had a collaboration with another artist breakdown, a male artist who um, was wanting to pursue a relationship with me and saying things about my body that made me uncomfortable. So I, I ended that and I was really angry. First I was kind of sad. And then I was really angry that I had considered his feelings and my reactions and deflecting a lot of his comments. So I decided to paint angry one time. That was Kathy's suggestion. My counselor's suggestion is make angry art, just go out and be pissed off and make it whatever, however you want to do it. So I made some really ugly paintings. (laughs) 
is kind of freeing. <laughs> I haven't kept them. They're ugly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you allowed yourself to make that mistake. Yeah, I was pissed off. I listened to a lot of uh, metal. <laughs> <laughs> but that was kind of your your process to get through that all, that range of emotion then. Yeah. Make angry art and don't be concerned if it looks good. Just feel the feeling and allow yourself to get pissed off at the injustice of the situation. Yeah, you said something, well, to allow yourself. Yes. So before you didn't used to allow yourself to do this. No, no. What would happen? I would just stuff it down or, you know, get drunk, I guess. I would numb myself. I I am one of those people from a family who has, you know, intergenerational poverty and abuse. I have two parents that my mom's no longer with us, but I've been alive longer without my mother than with her. And um, she was from, a, like, I wouldn't say they were, you know, super poor, but they were definitely not well off. And my dad grew up in abject poverty in Scotland. And so these two people came together and one was really anxious and one was really avoidant. And anger was not an emotion to be expressed in the household. I'd say me and my sister were raised more like boys to suppress our emotions than anything else. So I sometimes feel more in common with men because it's it's easy to be angry and like have a pretend anger than to actually allow yourself to feel anger and then work through it. So I don't know. It's been a lot of avoidance. <laughs> yeah. But you've decided to face yourself now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What were the, so we were talking about efficiency yep. uh, in the physical world now. What's the efficient thing you're doing for the, for the mental health you were saying? It's, it's, that's a really interesting question, especially right now, because, because I've decided to focus on uh, my relationships I've taken a big step back in art, not to stop producing, but just to produce less. And um, the, I've, I've let some of my good habits that I was using to be productive fall to the, to the side. So I use a planner by a high-performance productivity expert. His name is Brendan Burchard. He has this high-performance planner, and it's for people, I'm mostly now I manage my schedule online, but this thing, it's it's a daily practice where on you fold open the book and on one side, it's um, kind of mindfulness prompts. Who do I need to be my best for today? What situation might trip me up? How would my best self deal with that? What are the big, big projects that I need to keep in mind today? Um, you know, my daily mantra to myself my three top priorities, things that need to get done, and then, you know, a timetable, and then an evening reflection. So that has been by far the thing that keeps me grounded in the present and moving forward. So that's been, for me, the thing that I need to do. And I thought journaling was really stupid. And there's there's this, uh, this woman who, um, I think her name is Julia Cameron. I might have got gotten the name wrong, but she wrote a book called The Artist's Way. She has this concept of morning pages. So it's free writing, um, three pages in a journal. I, If you want to do this, I'd say get a small journal, not a big one. And it's the first thing you, the first thing when you get up in the morning and you just start writing whatever's in your head. And if you don't know what to write, you write, I don't know what to write until something else pops up into your mind. And the idea is to unburden your subconscious so that you can do your best work and patterns start to emerge. They're nothing to do with art. They're things to do with your, your personal life and your inner landscape that maybe you need to tweak or deal with. So when I'm 
when I'm feeling really lost and, and directionless, I that's that's a tool that I use. So those are the two best things that I've done. Ooh, sounds like you having a game plan in the morning helps shape that day. Yeah, I don't know if that's a me thing. Um, I'm kind of. I think you and I are similar. We're both kind of intense people. Um, but I'm I'm a project manager. Like I'm cer- I'm certified as a project manager, so I take these things like a project. I don't know if that's a healthy way to be, but it's the only way I know. <laughs> I'm kind of like, I need some good solid directions. It makes me feel good to cross a thing off on a list and know that I've got it done. Yeah. You have a good system for it. Yeah. You know what to expect. Yeah. And so with this brain dump you're doing in the morning, you're looking for the common occurrences then? Yeah. Part of it is common occurrences. Like things that I don't realize are bothering me will pop up into their worries. Just small little details or things that I'm feeling grateful for. Just, it's not always doom and gloom in these morning pages. It can be just, you know, I'm just feeling really connected and fortunate and and just really grateful for what I have. Those come up in my morning pages as well. And I think as much as it, as I work on myself, I also try to focus on what, what I've been given and what I've made happen by kind of getting out of my own way. Getting out of your own way? All the time, yeah. So what does that mean? How, how are you getting out of your own way? I think the best way I've got out of my own way is to stop blocking people in conversations. I used to be such a pain in the ass. I used to be a terrible person to have. I think, I think anyways. <laughs> I used to be a terrible person to be in a conversation with. I, there's a concept of blocking in conversations where, I, uh, this is the example. You give me a compliment and I'm like, oh no, that's nothing. And I basically throw your comment back in your face. That is a psychological blocking of another person in conversation. They're reaching out to do a bit of connection with you through a compliment, through a kind word. And by you refusing to take it, it's like shutting down that part of the conversation. But if you say, thank you, I really appreciate you saying that, you're creating space for that other person to engage with you. And I used to block in that way all the time. It's still hard because I still don't 100% like myself. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But yeah, getting, just being able to show up with other, with and for other people too has allowed me to get out of my way. Ooh, how'd you figure out you were blocking people? Um, I didn't. I, I had a book. So a friend of mine, uh, actually a former colleague, uh, recommended I read a book and I forget the name of the book, but it was about communicating. The book was kind of a boring read, but it talked about the different patterns in communication and the different ways you can block in communication. I'm like, oh, I do most of these. I'm kind of an asshole to be around. <laughs> How did you feel when you found out you're you're being an asshole? Well, I mean, I took it badly because I'm me. <laughs> and this was before I did the work. So I took it really badly. <laughs> I'm like, it can't be that way, but it definitely was. I I tend to be a perfectionist. No, I definitely I am a perfectionist. And it's um <laughs> knowing that I have to give myself the space to be imperfect because I don't expect perfection from anyone else. I don't expect it from my kids. I don't expect it from my partner. I don't expect it from my friends or anybody. People are the way they are. Life is messy. People are messy. We're basically, you know, hairless animals running around doing things. And I should be as imperfect as anybody else. So you actually gave yourself allowance for mistakes now. Well, kind of. I mean, it's it's like it's touch and go. <laughs> <laughs> What's a mistake that you're happy to give yourself the allowance to do? Oh. Um, hmm. I think 
Well, I don't think it's necessarily a mistake, but I've been trying to make more recordings for um, more video content for social media. And it's really hard to make these because when I see them, I think they're not perfect. Or when I take pictures and I realized early on that taking a photo of yourself gets more engagement than taking a photo of your artwork. No one gives a shit about the art. I mean, they do. What they're interested in is the person who's making the art. Social networks are social networks. They're not arts and crafts networks. People want to see the person who's doing the thing. What do they look like? How do they dress? What do their eyes look like when they smile or don't smile? So pictures of myself get more engagement. And being okay with how my face looks, because it looks weird to me, being okay with what I write in my posts, that's kind of where I'm practicing that. I think it was two weeks ago. There's a picture of me on my Instagram where I'm wearing my old lady glasses <laughs> and I'm looking at, I'm looking up at the TV. I'm wearing a shirt. I, I look kind of schlumpy. My hair is down and, and messy and I've got a PS5 controller in my hand and I'm looking at the screen trying to fix something. And I took a picture of myself and I posted that on social media, uh, on Instagram specifically, because people have this idea that I make art all the time. I'm always in the studio. I'm always working. I always look great. This is how I always show up. But I wanted to start sharing some of these smaller moments showing, you know, I'm not always in the studio. I'm at home looking shitty after my day job fixing my kid's PlayStation account when I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> when did you figure out that you were going to feel safe being vulnerable in that way? It's when I decided what my boundaries were for what I posted on social media and what I didn't. I made a very clear boundary about what I wanted to put out there. One of them, you know, talking about the sexual assault with you, I'm comfortable talking about it. Um, I'm just not comfortable posting about it in small, short form because, not because I'm ashamed of it, but because I don't want that to be the focus of my social media, it's a thing that happened to me. It doesn't determine my life anymore. It doesn't determine my outcomes anymore. I'm not running for it, from it. I'm not running to something because of it. Uh, so that was, I, I had alluded to it every so often in different social media posts and someone had specifically asked what I had experienced or they said, they said something like, I must've missed what happened to you. And I, I just said, I, I haven't specified and I'm not sure if I ever will at this point. Yeah. Definitely. And also that assault that you had, that's not who you are. That's just a little blip. So right. do I say, oh, I spilled a little bit of milk this morning. Yeah. Milk spiller. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to broadcast that. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> so then when you're doing your painting, yep. what happens when you make a mistake on the canvas? I'm just trying to think. Well, I mean, there's the mistake where I bump something and I like totally mess it up. And I just, I, I either try to fix it by applying a bunch of water to see if I can thin out the paint. Because when you apply water to acrylic paint, it spreads out the pigment so that they're no longer attached. And then you can just kind of wipe it away. It doesn't stay on the canvas. So you can add water and wipe it away. So what? it's like almost like an eraser with acrylic paint. Has to be wet though. Can't be dry. So the paint still has to be wet. Yeah. And then when you apply that water, it puts a barrier in between the first layer and the second layer of paint, it, which you can well, wipe off. Well, it spreads out. It spreads out the pigment. Uh, the pigment. I'll say molecules. Someone. <laughs> someone on the internet can be. That's not called molecules, but it spreads out the pigment molecules. So they're because acrylic paint has binders in it, 
and it already has a bit of water in it. But if you keep applying water onto it, the binders, they can't hold onto that pigment and they get thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner. That's why um, professional artists will use acrylic medium to thin paints instead of water because that's a binder that helps everything stay together and the water helps everything break apart. So you apply water and then you can clean up a, a, an oops. I got, I bumped myself and I, you know, skittered a line over here. It's how I paint my power lines. I'll paint them in with a thin, a very thin layer of, um, of black. And then I'll use water to like edge in the sides until they're really nice and thin. So that's how I do my power lines. If I've made another mistake, one thing I've noticed is that in my early work, my skies were positioned incorrectly. So if you, um, if you if you've got if you're looking at building straight on, the sky isn't isn't back and forth over top of it. The sky it has this lift and it goes up and it goes over the building. And you know what a real sky looks like. And my some of my paintings weren't working and I couldn't figure out what it was. It's because I had this building and then I had like the sky over top of it. <laughs> this flat sky. Flat sky. <laughs> so I had to I had to reposition it. So I I took something called acrylic molding paste and. I just repositioned the sky. So it's like putting artificial brush, brush strokes on and then painting over top of that. So I just reposition things. It's like renovations. I do, I do building renovations when I make a mistake on a painting. <laughs> you can move something around on the painting once it's set? Well, I just re I paint over it. I use new layers of, some, of uh, a medium to build up areas of the painting and then I go over top again. Oh. Yeah. How do you know when to stop being so perfect with a painting? Yes and no, sometimes. It depends. <laughs> knowing when it's good enough and knowing when to stop are, are difficult to achieve. I asked my mentor this one time. I said, how do you know when to stop on a painting? She's like, with experience, you just start to know. Oh, so you start to trust yourself. Yes. Now. Yeah. And you know what? That's even a metaphor for the healing journey that I was on is beginning to trust myself and trust my own judgment in other people and situations at work in art. Yeah. You just, you just learn to trust yourself because the way I'm not, I'm not an artistic photocopy machine. I'm not going to reproduce. I'm not hyper-realistic. I'm realistic enough. Um, I'm not hyper-realistic. What I, I want to give you the impression and the feeling of a building and a street or of a back alley or of an abandoned school. I'm not giving you a hyper-realistic reproduction of that school in a point in time. This is my reality and how I experienced it through color and through composition. Mm, and you can convey that with subtle nuances in that painting. Right. You don't need to paint every blade of grass. You can put a suggestion of grass. And it's part of it has come as I've evolved my style and the more that I work with color. So then you're just getting them to look at the picture as a whole and not dissecting it then. Exactly. And this is a this is this is how I usually view art myself. People always get hung up on is this good art or bad art and the answer is yes. <laughs> it it can be both. There is a piece of art for every collector out there. It doesn't matter if you think it's shitty, someone else will love it. Because art is so subjective. Everybody is coming from a different place. So when I look at a piece, and it's not so much sculpture. I'm not as familiar with um, sculpture and installation. So this is more with something on a canvas, something on a wall. I look at how my eye is traveling around the image. This is how I evaluate if a painting is done or needs to be reworked. 
I look at the painting and I ask, I just, I'll look down and then I'll look up at the painting and I'll feel the journey that my eyes are doing. I won't, I won't force them any which way and I'll see how it's flowing. And some of my paintings, there's one that I, I love, but I looked at it last week and my eye goes from the middle down to the bottom, up the side, and then it gets stuck in this wide open light gray sky because the sky is wrong. And I'm like, what a shame. There's this beautiful detailed puzzle, uh, puddle, puddle, but you can't really spend time with the puddle because your eye keeps getting dragged right up to this right-hand corner. So I have to fix that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because you, you changed the focal point by accident. Yeah, because... The, the way you compose a painting or an image allows your eye to travel around the painting or get stuck in a gutter of the painting. And the gutter can be right, right in the middle. It can be at the bottom left. It can be the top right. So when I look at a painting, I'm asking myself, does my eye want to move in circles around this painting? Does it feel, or does it feel like it doesn't quite know where to land because it's fighting between two things? That's how I even decide how intense the colors are going to be, or if, are the colors fighting with each other? Like if I have a painting and people are like, I love it, love the colors. And I'm like, sorry, the sky's now going to be orange. It's because something in that painting was fighting with the color that the sky was originally. Mm, so you want it to be kind of a frictionless journey around that painting. Then. Yes. Yeah. This relates to what you already do, which is you're taking friction out of day-to-day -day processes. Right. So then what have you learned from painting that you apply to real world now? It's kind of back and forth. It, honestly, what I learned in painting, I had one of my, I've had a, quite a few job interviews where people have expressed concern that the art would compete with the day job. And I'm, and I need both to be happy. I love my job. I love working in IT. I love my other job. I love working in art and making paintings and both feed each other. I can be my best self because of both of them. The way I review policies at my day job allow me to review paintings in the evenings or on the weekend. And in painting, how I deal with a collector is how I deal with my team members or with my supervisor or with my stakeholders. It's all one and the same. There, there's not really, the experiences are tangibly different, but they're intrinsically the same. Yeah, they kind of, they're kind of synergistic then. Absolutely. When you're asking for art installations, what surprised you when you first started doing that? You mean in terms of... Getting into a gallery. Oh, well, this is... This, honestly, the shows have come to me. I haven't gone to the shows. It's been like serendipity or whatever you want to call it. Um, Alt House in Saskatoon, they represent me here in town. It's It's great. I... I had been thinking about going with, um, or I, I had been thinking about who could I approach to help broker my sales between myself and men. Because men online, they are lovely. But if men online take a liking to me, they try to get my attention by pretending that they want to collect my work and they waste my time. So what I do now, and it's not to be, well... Part of it is what I, I, I have, I have a, a man in my life that I love very, very much. And all other men are not beings that I'm going to necessarily be friends with or associate with. Not because I'm dating someone jealous, 
but because I don't want there to be any appearance that I'm, you know, I might be free or available in the future. So I was looking at the time I was looking for a gallery to help broker sales between myself and others. And Althaus sent me a message and they asked if I would be interested in being one of their artists. And we met and Miranda and Joe, the owners, are just phenomenally lovely human beings. And they just they just came to me. And I, I just, I couldn't imagine a, a, like a better fit. Their use of color and their involvement in, in some of the issues that are near and dear to my heart. And then Esperanto Gallery is one in Markham, Ontario. And uh, Esperanto approached me as well to be one of their artists. Just, and they can, they can broker deals out for me out in that area. But right now it's, it's like, I just need to get, I need to get through commissions and then get them some work. So those things have, and the, the Chapel Gallery in North Battleford, that show came to me as well. The show at Una Pizza, that came to me as well. It, just all of these, the only, I guess the only one that I got myself was applying, um, was through the Francis Morrison Central Library show. I wrote an application and I got myself a show. Oh, so everybody you've dealt with has been extremely supportive of keeping your work pure then. Yeah. There have, I mean, even my collectors, I, I don't know if this is my vibe and who is attracted to my vibe. I don't know if I'm just extremely fortunate to have such amazing people as collectors of my work, but even the people that I've made commissions for have been absolutely amazing to deal with. I am really, really lucky that I have these incredible collectors. They have been really easy. They've been really understanding. And they have, I mean, maybe, they, maybe they've been impatient. Like, when is my painting going to be done already? But they, they've been really appreciative and patient with my process of editing and, and kind of changing things until I get them the right painting for them. Nice. Because yeah. they know, they trust you. They seem to, and I'm, I feel, and I don't want to, I don't want to even take that for granted because trust is something that can be broken really quickly. hundred percent. Yeah. Then also that you set that boundary that you're not going to sell your own work. Well, I sell my work sometimes. <laughs> I prefer not to. <laughs> I don't want to do it. It's like, you know, people get administrative assistance because there's work that they just don't enjoy doing. I don't have that luxury, but if I could just make some work and leave it somewhere and it just disappears and it gets sold and gets put out, then I would really appreciate that. But that's not the reality of an artist. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. You, you'd rather just focus on the art right now. Yeah. I, yeah. I, my website's a mess and it sucks and I've been working on it and I had this realization, like, I think it was last week, I was working on my website and I was trying to get my portfolio set up on my website. Just, just got to get the paintings on there without any thought about how do I want to convey the information and what would be helpful for other people. So I'm, I'm working on it. It's not been published to my website, but I'm working on a section where it's all commissions, the types of commissions that I do when my books will be open to commissions again and then examples of the commissions that I've done for people. Oh, yeah. And you're trying to make it so the user experience is good. Yeah. So it's more clear because I've done so many different things. And even though it makes sense in my head, it's a, it might as well be someone, you know, traversing a labyrinth of, you <laughs> yeah. know, artistic terms and creative output. It's just, 
it's just wild for people. Yeah, because they don't have the backstory. They don't. <laughs> I always think they do. I'm like, well, it's not hard. I mean, I make some paintings and here they are. But it's <laughs> people have short attentions and, you know, and, and they have other things to do. I'm not their sole focus. No one is thinking about me outside of the 20 seconds they look at one of my pictures online. Yeah, and you want to maximize those 20 seconds. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Definitely. <laughs> awesome. Well, should we call it? Yeah, that sounds good.